go. Um, tonight's going to be a little different than normal, just because this passage is more information than story. Like, there's some stuff that goes on here. And uh, when we first started this book, we, we talked about, we actually brought this out at the beginning of last week, how Jesus opened up this book with kind of a royal um, proclamation almost. He used some patterns that existed at the time for when a king would take a throne. And uh, that included the commissioning of heralds, which were kind of witnesses that went out throughout the kingdom because they didn't have social media and they didn't even have telephones to let people know that there was a new king. So they would commission heralds and say, go and witness to the new kingdom. And so he sends out the apostles. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in all these places. And, and, uh, and they would have recognized this pattern, that this was kind of a royal pattern. And so we actually talked that very first week about how um, this created a tension. Uh, it actually introduced, and this was the week that we actually first introduced the concept of tension with this book. And this is some of the slides from that first uh, from that first week, just about how this brought up this question of where is the kingdom? Because Jesus ascended um, to the throne, which was kind of an out-of-world place, but then he sent them to witness in the world. And so it kind of created this, this kind of fundamental primary tension of where is the kingdom? Is it here or is it there? And if you remember, our answer was yes, it is. Um, and then last week, in kind of a really narrative style, Luke tells what is ultimately an Old Testament type story of uh, kind of a foreign king attacking the people of God. It opens with Herod say, saying that Herod drew the sword and killed um, James. Uh, and, it, and it's the first time the church is persecuted from without. Um, everything else has come from the Jews or it's come from conflict from, from within. But this is the first time that a Roman, kind of a Roman leader is attacking from outside and and the way Luke sets it up is he, he kind of sets Herod up to look like this kind of big political power figure. Um, he even talks about how he went to some cities and they were like, it's the voice of a god and not of a man. You know, Herod is this big political player. And the church is just this kind of bumbling group of screw-ups. Like uh, Peter gets arrested. An angel sets him free. He doesn't even recognize what's happening until he's already free. He knocks on the door. The girl's so excited she doesn't even let him in. Um, the... Men who are praying won't even listen to the girl when she says Peter's out there. Like the church does not look great in this passage. Like they're uh, and so we kind of and it's an Old Testament story we've heard a thousand times. It's it's the giant and the little boy with a sling. It's a pharaoh and a shepherd who shows up and says, "Let my people go." It's the story we've heard over and over again of this big powerful figure declaring. War on the people of God and the people of God's response. And the story ends, we talked last week with Herod. It says he died and was eaten by worms. And then it ends with this line, the word of God increased and was multiplied. So at the end of the story, the church is still going, still growing, still doing great. And this, this, out, this big outside force is defeated once again. And so James kind of sets up the kingdom again. Um, and a lot of times this kingdom talk feels like semantics or it feels like metaphorical language that we're just kind of, we use the word kingdom just because we don't have a better word or whatever and it's, it's kind of a picture. But tonight um, we, we get a little bit of a look or a peek inside of the kingdom. We see what's called kingdom dynamics. Um, and this is just the way the kingdom works. Some of the things that happen inside of the kingdom that are a little bit unique. And I thought it'd be fun because some of these things are are 
stuff we overlook a lot. And it'd be fun to kind of pull them out and talk about them. And because they just kind of exist in this passage, but it doesn't really teach on them. So I thought it'd be fun to just pull them out uh, before we really get into Paul and Barnabas' journey and what they're doing out there. Some unique stuff happens in these first couple of verses. And so we're going to pull them out. A kingdom, if it's kind of the historical sense, you know, it uh, comes with it a certain level of uh, responsibilities and rights. It kind of has both. When you live in a kingdom, you're expected, uh, you expect a certain protection from outside forces. There's a certain, uh, you expect there to be kind of a secure and stable market of some kind that you can participate in. You expect there to be certain levels of infrastructure. And, and in return, you pay taxes, you participate, you help. You know, back in the old days, you would be kind of expected to join the militia or the army if you were within the right age. Like, you know, there's, so there's certain levels of things that exist in a kingdom. It's a real thing, and it has real rhythms and rules. There's social mores. There's, you know, stuff, cultural things to be part of in the kingdom. And really, all of this exists in the Christian kingdom as well. And a lot of times we... We become a Christian, we think it's, it's, a, it's just a belief system. It's just something that we kind of assent to, and we don't really understand that we are taking on a citizenship. We talked about this at the end of last week, that this is a real citizenship with a real king, and it has its own uh, rhythms and infrastructures and markets and all that stuff that a regular kingdom has. And some of it exists here, and some of it's weird. <laughs> so we're going to pull some of that out from this passage. And I've broken this into kind of three three kind of distinct areas that show up just in this passage. This is not exhaustive, and it's probably never quite this clean, but for the sake of teaching it, I kind of pulled them out separately, which is fun. One is the offices of the church. Anybody ever heard this phrase? The offices of the church. Some call it the five-fold ministry of the church. Um, this one's interesting. It says this. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Prophets and teachers. And these are words we kind of hear and we don't really think much about. And this is kind of interesting the way these two are dualized here because, um, and this is just for the fun of telling it, but one of the, one of the challenges we have in hermeneutics or the, the study of any ancient writing is what we call the hermeneutical bridge. So you kind of have um, two responsibilities of hermeneutics. One is to interpret. That's what we call the bridge over to the text. So we have to figure out what the text even says. This is when you get into language translation. It's when you get into understanding the original audience. If you're interested, they've got the hermeneutical triangle where you have the text itself, the author, and the audience, and you have to try to uh, individually break down what each one was. So the text is translation. The author was his intent, and what was he trying to say? And the audience is what they would have heard when they originally heard the text. And all that's the job of going over the bridge and figuring out the text. And the other is called contextualization. It's bringing that ancient text back to our time and saying, what does that have to say to us today? It has a reason for being there. It has, God has something to say to us out of it. And those are two distinctive uh, things to figure out. And what's ironic is the teacher is typically the one that goes over the bridge. They're the one that goes over and tells you what would have been happening and what was going on. And the prophet is oftentimes the one who brings it back and says, this is what this means to us today. This is what we're supposed to do with this passage. So it's kind of unique because in Antioch at the time, they would have had the Old Testament scripture and the concept of Jesus would have been fairly new. And so they would have been going through the Old Testament and saying, 
what, you know, what, where's Jesus back here? And, and, and they would have been finding new things. They would have gotten to Isaiah and their minds would have been blown and they would have seen all this stuff and they would have brought it back. Somebody would have brought it back and said, this is what we're supposed to do with this information. So these two tend to go together a lot of times, but they're part of a bigger group that we call the, um, the offices of the church. And they're found here in, uh, in Ephesians. It says he, and this is Jesus, um, gave, the, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So we call these the fivefold offices of the church, or the fivefold ministries of the church. Apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists. And these, what's ironic is it says that these are for the building up of the body, which is something we have to think about when we think about evangelists, because evangelists we typically imagine going out to the unsaved and making them saved. But these are five ministries that were given to the body for strengthening up the body. And these are, these are what we call functional positions, not job titles. And some of them are, get a little confusing because they also, that same word is oftentimes used for the job title, but that's not what they're meant here because you would never hire a prophet like a prof, you become a prophet when you prophesy. When you have a message from God, you give it. You don't. That's not a job title you fill and say, "Okay, we need to put a thing on Monster and see if we can't hire a prophet." You know that you just wouldn't do that. So these are these are what we call functional positions. In other words, these are things that God like kind of gifts God gives to the church through us. So you become a prophet by giving a message from God. You become a teacher when you teach. You know, it's not a position that we fill in the church. It's, it's a position God gives each of us um, to draw. There are, there are elders and deacons and, there, and you know, a capital A apostles, you know, in the, in the scripture. And these are more job titles, but that's not what we have today. So let's talk about these real quick. An apostle, the Greek word just means a sent one, one who has been sent. And so this is... Uh, not always what we classically think of the apostle. This is kind of lowercase a apostle, somebody that God sends to do a job. A prophet, the original word where we get the word prophet comes from seer, one who sees. And this is kind of ironic. In fact, if you go back to like Samuel, they used to say the seer is coming. They actually call, they translate it, the word seer a few times when they're speaking of prophet. And this is, I think the prophetic position is kind of interesting because a lot of times we think of prophecy in terms of declaring the future, um, like seeing the future, seeing something God's going to do. I think a lot of times prophecy has as much to do with seeing the past and seeing the present. It's, it's, it's having the vision to see how God is moving, to say, I've seen these patterns before. This is how God does things. And, and I kind of see something happening and, and, and I'm, I'm almost willing to say, based on the patterns behind and what's going on, that this is what God is about to do. It's not necessarily like a go into a trance and come out with a vision, although that does happen a few times in the Old Testament where they come back with really clear visions. A lot of times the prophetic gift is more about just recognizing patterns and seeing that God is doing something and having the foresight to say, I think God is moving in this direction and we need to go there. That, a lot of times that's... And it doesn't always... Like some of the Old Testament prophets were weird. And there's no doubt that, I mean, what he told the one to lay naked in the street, you know, for, and to eat. He told him to eat human dung first. And he was like, please, can I do cow dung? Like, and he like gave him that permission. Like there was some real weird stuff going on. But usually 
So there was a few of those, but usually it's just somebody who had the foresight. If you go and read the prophets, usually they noticed a pattern in the kingdom and they were going, hey guys, we've done this before. If you read the book of Judges, I've seen this pattern before and it's not good. We've got to get back to God. There's a, there's a nation up there named Babylon that's swallowing things up. And if we keep going down the road we're going down, God is not going to help us defend ourselves and get them. We're going to get swallowed up. So a lot of times it feels to me more like these guys just saw more. And it wasn't like this spirit, like this trance seeing. It was just that they just had, they were tuned into what God was doing. The evangelist. This is kind of a fun word because evangelon is just the good news, the gospel. And so this is kind of a made up word that means like good newser. <laughs> like someone who went about spreading the good news, a good newser. So this is just someone who, um, who went about drawing people to Jesus, went about just telling people about Jesus. I always, uh, uh, I told Cole Evans, I'm going to get him a shirt that says gas station evangelist because he would call me all the time and say, okay, I got in this conversation at the gas station. I was telling somebody about Jesus. And I would say, is that all you do is stand at the gas station and tell people? I bet five times, I bet there's five times he said, you know, I got in a conversation with somebody about Jesus at the gas station and, and she brought up a good question. Help me out with this. And he would ask me, you know, next time that next time I bump into that at D's, what do I say? And so like, yeah, it's like the gas station just seems to be. And so that that is a, an office of the church. It's not a job, you know, vocation. Now, he may choose the vocation of evangelist later. That's a different thing. But like it or not, he's an evangelist. Shepherd. This is the classic word pastor. Um and it's a kind of a caregiver. This is this is the person who um, who tends the flock and loves well. He's the person who's you know notices when people are missing and 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 does the the pastoral care work. You know, is there anything I can do for you? You comfortable? I'm so glad you're here. You know, that's the the people who are naturally pastoral. And then the teacher we're pretty familiar with. Uh, I love the word teach. I kind of rely on the word teach in the Greek because the actual literal definition of teach in the Greek is to explain fully. <laughs> and I cling to that. That's my goal is to explain fully. Um, and so part of the kingdom dynamics is that we have these new jobs to consider. Like, and I don't even know if jobs is the right word because this is, you know, these are, these are roles in the kingdom. And it, cha- it should change the way we think. We don't see ourselves getting a new job. We wonder, have I been sent to this company? Am I an apostle here? Is this, has God sent me to this place? You know, or I don't just read the news. I prophesy. I look at what's happening and I see the state of affairs and I, and I look at it compared to patterns of the past and what is God doing and where are we heading? That's a prophetic gift. We, read the, we should read the newspaper different. As Christians, we should read it with a prophetic eye. We don't come to church and just tolerate the noise kids make and just try to corral them. And okay, we do that a little bit, but we also recognize that we're shepherds. We're trying to raise a generation. The best weapon we can send into the future for Christianity is well-raised Christian kids that we send out in it because in all honesty, most of us are too old to change the world now. <laughs> the best way we can do it is to raise kids and shepherd kids and love kids and then send them out to make a difference. And we need to recognize that, that we're, we're doing something different than just raising kids to be good citizens. We're, we're shepherding another generation. 
So part of being in a kingdom is recognizing this different set of roles and responsibilities that, that we, we affect the world differently through these offices. And then the second one, which is the most fun for me because we don't talk about these much. The classic Christian disciplines. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for us Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. There's a set of behaviors that are all throughout the scripture, even though the scripture doesn't usually take much time to describe them. It just, it just, people are just doing them usually. And the desert fathers were the first ones to really start kind of naming them and classifying them. And, and then a lot of what we call the contemplative, uh, a lot of people call them the contemplative masters, but just some of the contemplative writers and theologians who didn't spend as much time trying to figure out like what the scripture said and all the nitpicky stuff of how it all fits together, but they just focused on prayer and what we call the inner life, like just the kind of the Christian journey, and they would write about it. And uh, Richard Foster did my, my personal favorite work on it called The Celebration of Discipline. So I'm going to kind of use his outline, even though, again, this isn't exhaustive. But um, he breaks them up this way, what he calls the inner disciplines which is meditation, study, prayer, and fasting. These are the ones that, that work on you. This is kind of the inner journey we take. And meditation, I love meditation because we've kind of gotten away from this because Eastern religions have kind of made everybody think, oh, meditation, that's that Eastern stuff you do while you do yoga, and I'm not into that. Um, and this is totally different. It's all through the scripture. David said, I'll meditate on your word daily. And meditation is when we let a passage work on us. Study is when we work on a passage. Study is when we try to figure out a passage and we go to it and we, and we try to figure out why it's there and what it says. Meditation is different. Meditation is when you take a passage, you read it 8 or 10, 12, 20 times, and then you just leave it in there. And you just let it bounce around. You let it work on you. You let it change. Like what? And you let it speak to you. And, and the classics used to call it Lectio Divina, spiritual reading. And it was, it was uh, when you, you, don't, you don't set out to, to, to truly like figure out the text or understand it. You just set out to just put it in there and just let God use it to work on you. So meditation is letting the text work on you, letting the scripture work on you. Study is you working on the scripture. Prayer we're a little more familiar with. So I won't spend much time there. Fasting um, is one of my favorites. We talked about it a little bit during Lent and we'll come back to this next year during Lent. But um, I typically think of fasting as exercising my no muscles. Like when you lift weights for football, like you don't just play football. You exercise all those muscles so that when you go to call on them on the field, they're there and they've been worked out. They've been exercised. Fasting is like that. One of these days you're going to bump into something you have to say no to. And it's good if you've exercised those muscles, if you've exercised your resistance muscles. And so fasting is saying this thing that's not bad for me. It's okay. It's a, it's a healthy thing in my life. But for a period of time, I'm going to say no to it. I'm going to, I'm going to resist it. Usually we do food, but you can do anything. It's, it, nothing says it has to be food. And you resist it for a while. And if you pick something that you never fail, if you pick something and, you're, and it's never a struggle, you didn't pick anything hard enough. Like if you lift weights and you never once push and don't get it, then you didn't put enough weight on there, right? You have to, that's how you know where your limit is, is you, you fail. So when you pick the right thing to fast, you should fail. Like most people when they fast, they're like, they mess up and then they feel terrible and they collapse. Like, oh God, I failed God. That's not what fasting is for. 
Fasting is to exercise your resistance muscles. And this doesn't work on us. And they're doing it in this passage. And we don't know why. That's the crazy thing about fasting. It is all the way back into the Old Testament. It comes through. They, they get mad at Jesus' disciples because he's not fasting. And, or because his disciples aren't fasting. And he's like, well, when the bridegroom's here, who, who fasts when the bride's here? You celebrate when the bridegroom's here. And then when he leaves, you fast again. That's all he gives us. It would be awesome if he would break it down more and why you fast and what exactly is supposed to happen. But he doesn't. We just know that the, that, that the Christians did it and they've always done it and that we're supposed to do it. And so we do it. And I, I personally feel like it opens up doors. I feel like it, in some way, it takes our mind off of certain things and, and it helps us create some focus. But nowhere does it give us that full breakdown. Those are the inner disciplines. And with those come the outer disciplines, um, which are simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. These are the things we do. These are the, so the other ones are things that are kind of going on on the inside of us. This one is, this is stuff we actually physically do. And, and some of these aren't very American. Simplicity is not very American. Simplicity is basically saying, what's, what's the least I can do with? Like in terms of, do I need uh, to add more? Do I need to have more? And, and uh, Richard Foster has a thing, and I've done it twice now, and it breaks my heart every time, is he says, go through your house and just, just imagine um, what can I give away? What can I just give away? And he goes, and the second you look and say something, I go, I can't give that away. He goes, give it away immediately. Just give it away right now. Don't even think about it. It's got too tight of a hold up on you. And I tried it and I couldn't do it. I said, no, screw it. I can't. That's too much. But it's, uh, the simplicity is saying, do I need all this? Do I need, do I need more? Do I have to have, and every once in a while, purging and just saying, almost like fasting, you know, you just go through and say, I'm just going to give some stuff away. I'm just going to give. I, I had a friend who, um, he was a huge Celebration of Discipline fan. It was one of the things that bonded us. We both loved this book so much. And you, could, you had to be real careful when you went in his house because you were like, dude, that is an awesome TV. He would go, take it, please. Take it with you. And, he would, and if you wouldn't, he would put it in your car. Like, this is yours now. I don't, like, if you, so you'd walk in, like, I don't want to compliment anything because he's going to give it to me. Like, because if you showed interest, he would just say, dude, that's yours then. I want you to have it. If you love it, I want you to have it. Because he took simplicity so seriously. Solitude's another tough one because we don't spend much purposeful time alone anymore. Like we've got our drive time and then we immediately turn on the radio or we something to listen to and kind of fill the dead air. Um, and solitude is, is both alone and silent. And the, the old uh, contemplative masters used to just sit in utter silence for days and just quietly and just see if they could take it. And I do not do well in this. Like, this is something I've actually started training and building into my life as a discipline, and it's hard. I get antsy. I don't do silence well. The second I hit the car, I put on some noise, like like I'm afraid of myself or something. I just don't want to. But I've noticed that once you, once you train in solitude, once you train in, like, silence into your life, and this is the way I love to put it, is you, don't, you can't realize until you're alone you can't realize that you're never alone. Like until you sit there with nothing and start to recognize the presence of God in the silence, do you realize, man, it's everywhere. Like God is always with me. And sometimes you've got to get alone to do that. I know some uh, hunters that um, they're almost disappointed if they have to shoot just because it's their only chance to get out in nature and just sit and be quiet. My dad's this way. Like, like when I was a kid, I didn't get it. He would, I'd beg him to take me. We'd go sit down, and I was like, is this, what are we waiting for? And he would just be like, shh, shh. 
And like, there's no chance there's a deer out yet, but he just wanted quiet. Like, I come out here for solitude. Submission, and this is a tough one too. Mostly because it's so badly abused. But submission is the, um, the act of doing something for no sake other than to, to submit. Like, and usually we want logical reasons. We want, you know, explain to me why this is beneficial for my life, you know. And, and forever the, the, you know, the church has been said, you know, we fast on this day. Why is that day? I mean, couldn't I technically, you know, we, we want to play the mental wrangling. Submission is just saying, okay, if that's what we do, that's what we do. And it's, it's, it's purposefully turning over your will. Again, it's a lot like fasting. It's practicing the act of turning over your will. And this one kind of comes into play a little bit here. And this one is really important. One of the main reasons I love submission as a discipline is because we have to go to the scripture this way. A lot of times we want to, we want the scripture to make perfect sense. And if it adds up in my life, then maybe I'll submit to it. And if we don't take into the scripture kind of a spirit of submission, like whatever this thing says to me, I have to change my life for it. Like I have to give my life to this thing. That spirit of submission is the only way the scripture can ever really change us and affect us. Because when we go in with that attitude of, you know, I'm going to, you know, understand and, you know, if it makes sense. And this passage, I don't like that. Yeah. Only when we go in saying, now granted, it's going to take some figuring out. And like, you can't just pull any passage out and, and do exactly what that one verse tells you. But we have to take to the... Scripture spirit of submission. Like my goal is to submit to what God has to tell me. And we do that by practicing. We do that by, by practicing service. We're relatively familiar with. It's the act of serving others. It's Jesus washing feet. And then there's one last set of disciplines called the corporate disciplines. And some of these we're pretty familiar with. Corporate worship, um, we know. And then, you know, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in your midst. This is where we get the idea of gathering together in Jesus' name, and this is important. Confession, though, this is one we've gotten away from, partially because the Catholics have gone so heavy into confession and used it to kind of control people that Protestants tend to get away from this. We tend to, you know, the priesthood of all believers means I can go directly to God and I don't need anybody else. But sometimes, you know, James says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Sometimes you need to hear another person Hear your confession and say, brother, on the authority of Scripture, I can tell you that you're forgiven. And, and based on the Bible, when we forgive, God forgives. I don't understand exactly what all that means theologically, but I know that it's in the Bible. When, when we forgive a sin on earth, he forgives it in heaven. And something about saying, I can tell you by the authority of Scripture, you're forgiven. That's a powerful thing for us to hear. And, we need, and it's powerful for us to speak our confessions I generally call this authenticity, being authentic, being real about who we are. And it, it becomes a discipline. And sometimes I think it's good to go to somebody and say, I need to make a confession and, and sit down. And, and actually, Celebration of Discipline, I love. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. He tells you how to receive a confession and, and that you don't. It's not a counseling session. It's not a, well, yeah, well, let me tell you what I've done. It's not a one-up session. It's not a, you know, a, hearing a confession is just about letting somebody confess their sin and then saying on the authority of scripture I can say you're forgiven that Jesus bore this on the cross and you are forgiven it's a powerful thing that I think we need to do and it's something we need to practice celebration is another one of the outward disciplines this is one that we we do but we we have a tendency to like 
separate it, like celebrations, like partying is something you do over here and then church is something you do over here. Like, and we don't realize that a huge chunk of the Old Testament was parties and, and parties where God was like, nobody works on that day or you put them to death. Like, like it was a, a really serious thing to party and it was a celebration. It was part of, I mean, everything from, you know, the Feast of, of uh, First Fruits was just a celebration of harvest. It was a harvest festival that you just party because God has given good things. Like it wasn't like a super spiritual thing. It was just like God brought in harvest and we're just going to party and enjoy it. Um, two, celebrating the works that God did. Um, so celebration was always big and it should still be. Our, our partying should be part of our faith. It should be part of what we do. And if we go too long without partying, I don't think we're being scriptural. Like if we don't go, if we go too long without just having fun in the name of Jesus, then I don't think we're being fully biblical. And the last one is guidance. And this is a lost art. Um, there are some faiths to do it. And this one also gets abused, which is a bummer. But it's the one that really shows up to me. Because all, because all these are in this passage. We had, they're praying, they're fasting. Um, it said they were worshiping together. Like a lot of these disciplines were present in this passage, but this is the one that's not exactly named. But it's, uh, but it's there and it's interesting. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I gave them. And if you, if you read that and ask the question, who did God speak to for Barnabas and Saul's first missionary journey? And then you put that in our real life, it would be like, it would, you know, be like us, God speaking to us that John is supposed to go be a missionary in Africa. Like, and God telling us, set aside, set aside John. Like, like him laying on our hearts that we're supposed to send John out to Africa. And this is a tough one, especially in America. Like, yeah, God, don't do that. Yeah. Um, because what's weird is it doesn't, and we don't know. I'm assuming God had also laid this on Paul and Barnabas' hearts. I'm assuming that it also happened. But it doesn't say that. It just says that God told the church to send Paul and Barnabas. And this is, we call this guidance in the classical, in the classical disciplines. And, and usually the way it would happen in, in the, with the classic writers is they would, they would tell you to go to the church and say, I am torn on a subject. I don't know what to do here. Here is my situation. I will submit to your will. And this is where submission comes in as well. And they would come to the church and say, I need guidance. And they would lay it out. And the, and the elders of the church would go through it and pray. And they would say, and they would seek God for you. And then they would seek the scripture. And then they would say what they know of you. They would examine the situation. And they would tell you, we're sending you to do this. And that's, that's not very American. Like we're into independence and individualism. Like we don't, we don't do guidance well. And it's tough here because then you've got to ask, who sent Paul and Barnabas? Was it the church or was it the Holy Spirit? It's another tension point. And I would say it's both. I would say yes. The Holy Spirit sent the Paul and Barnabas and so did the church. Um, and also from this, and this is a tough one, but it comes with the, you don't ever really get the best look at your life. You're looking at it from the inside. You miss a lot. One of our elders, when I asked him to be an elder, said, um, I, don't feel, I don't think I'm qualified. And my answer was, I don't think you get to make that call. 
like the, only those who are watching your life and those who are seeing the, the long progression of your life have the authority from the body to go, here's what I see in your life. Because we miss a lot because we're seeing it from the inside. And this is tough because that means somebody might come to you and say, I think you're a teacher. And you're like, I know I don't teach. That's not what I do. And they're like, and I'm like, you don't get to make that call. Because what I see is you teaching and I see people listening and I see God doing things in that. And I see things happening. Maybe you don't feel ready. I'm just not ready for this. I feel like I'm in over my head and blah, blah, blah. And someone's like, the body, God has in essence spoken to us that you are ready and this is what you're supposed to do in this moment. We already talked about being forgiven. Sometimes you need to hear the body say, you are forgiven. You're clear of this. You are free. We don't do this much. One more thing. This is the third thing that shows up in this passage, which is kind of interesting. Um, Kingdom vocation. When he says, set apart Paul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And this might be one of the toughest ones to wrap our mind around because vocation is such a primary part of who we are, um, kind of in the earthly kingdom. You know, it's usually the second thing we talk about. Like, hi, my name's Chris. I'm a, you know, fill in the blank. Like, it's, it kind of comes with our identity, what we do. And so this concept that God has a work for us, a vocation for us, call Barnabas and Paul to this work that I have for them. We don't really know what to do with that. And typically, we like to separate secular from sacred. So we like to say, you know, I'm, uh, oh no, I, I work in the secular market or, you know, the church jobs or the ministry jobs and the other ones are, you know, the kind of non-ministry secular jobs. And I just don't think that holds up in the scripture, Paul's one of our best examples. Before Paul got this call right here, he was a tent maker. And then guess what he was after he got called? He was a tent maker who now told people about Jesus. Like we find out that Paul kept doing what he was doing. Paul didn't like leave the tent maker thing to become an evangelist or an apostle or whatever you want to call his role out in the world. He just became a preaching tent maker. He became someone who continued to do what he was doing, but now he talked about Jesus at the same time. And I think this is usually the way it goes, that, that typically our vo- like all of us have a ministry. We all have a calling, and, and it often includes our vocation. It's part of it, and that's a holy thing, whether, whether it's that you're working to help fund ministry or whether you're you're working to affect your coworkers or you just have a job that serves people and heals people and, and helps people or whether you're working to feed your family and raise another generation of godly people. All of that is holy. All of that is part of what we're called to. And a huge part... And this is what I think God really changes the world. Like so much of what we do works on people and on our hearts and stuff, but the real impact he makes out in the world, in the real marketplace, in the real is Christians just being Christians out in the world, doing business with integrity, like 
marketing with integrity, just everything we do, do it as Christians. And, and not going out like, I'm a Christian business, because that gets creepy. Don't do that. Usually when someone comes to me like, I'm a Chris, Christian you know, contractor, I mean, he's like, no thanks. But I am too, but you just made it weird. Like, <laughs> like usually if someone feels like they have to advertise it, they're, it, yeah, it just doesn't jive with me. Just be a good person. Be a Christian. Love like Christ. You know, show acceptance like Christ in your vocation, in your world. I think that's where the world truly gets changed by the church. So in this one little passage, we have some, there's a lot kind of packed in here. We've got the Christian disciplines showing up. We've got the the offices, the offices of the church, kind of these functional roles within the church showing up. And we've got like a Christian kind of kingdom vocation, if you want to call it that. What, what my kingdom job is, aside from my regular, because my regular job is part of that, is part of what I do, but I also have this calling that I'm called to. So how do we respond to that? And here's, there's a, a lot for just a few little verses, most of it informational, I know. But... Um, to me, this is where the rubber meets the road. Like, it's easy to, um, you know, go to church and just sit and listen and enjoy the people and whatnot. But this is where it takes on flesh in a real way. And I, I think of it in terms of um, the difference between, like, when I should put a map up there and I show a little pointer and show where something is, and you study the scripture, where Paul went, blah, blah, blah. And every single time I do that, Judy comes up to me and goes, ah, you should have been there. It was awesome. Or Doug comes up to me and says, oh, man, you need to go to the Holy Land and see it in real life. It's so cool when you see it in real life. And that's the difference. Like, Christianity, when you just kind of come and watch it, is like looking at it on a piece of paper. And only when we start to embrace the Christian disciplines, and we start to recognize our vocation in the kingdom, and we start to function in an office of the church is it like being there it's like the difference between visiting a place and seeing pictures of it like it's living it it's trying it on in a very real way and a lot of times if you're not doing that you're examining Christianity from the outside you're looking at it from out here you're kind of looking into the kingdom and and deciding what you like and what you don't like and I don't know it looks like a system that has too many holes in it and blah 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 you're that brings us to our second point, our second response to passages like this. And that's jump in. And I would just, honestly, I would pick one. And maybe I'll put them in the email this week and you can just, I would try one of the disciplines. Just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick a passage and meditate on it. See what this whole thing's about. Or I'm going to go through my house and see what I can just simplify and just give some things away. Or I'm going to, there's Whatever. And what's cool is people have been doing this in the name of Jesus for 2,000 years. These are not new things. This is not a fad. Like these are, like I said, the Desert Fathers were like first and second century Christians, kind of monastic Christians um, who people would come to. They would call them gurus and all kinds of things. They would come to for advice because these guys would, would pray and meditate on Scripture all day and people would come to them and and they, they're the ones who started kind of outlining some of this stuff. And, and from a lot of their teachings came a lot of the monasteries um, and things in the Christian faith. But um, 
but a lot of the contemplative writers have hung on to these things and they're still around. If you're not sure, like, ask the body. Like, if I had a, an office, like if I was functioning in one of these offices, what, what would that look like? Like, dive in in some way. Start to examine your job and say, how do I do this for the kingdom? This is how I, and, and most of it is irrational <laughs> because it's not part of the earthly kingdom. And, and most of it doesn't really have anything to do with this earthly kingdom. And most of it's not, like I say, most of it, fasting, um, submission, guidance, most of it's not very American. But it's part of our kingdom, and they've always been part of our kingdom. And so part of our citizenship is to say, how does this kingdom function? And this is as close as I usually get to saying, like, here's a list of do's and don'ts for the kingdom. And none of these are like, there's absolutely nothing you can do on this list to earn God's favor. Like, that's not what the Christian disciplines are about. That's not what ministry is about. That's not what vocation's about. That's not what anything is. This is just, how does this kingdom function? Like, how does this kingdom work? What are the rules and mores and things of this kingdom and what kind of jobs and positions and things are there? And here in this passage, we're seeing them in the book of Acts. We're seeing this kind of new kingdom inside the existing kingdom show up. And it's full of weird stuff like fasting and prayer and, and, uh, and God telling a group of people to tell somebody else to do something and all this stuff that just doesn't really make sense or fit. But it's kingdom living. And this is why um, we take communion. The sacraments are, are kind of the, the, the jump-off point, if you want to call them that. These are the kind of primary disciplines of the kingdom. Baptism, the idea that when you um, kind of put your faith in Christ and decide to join a people that we signify by dunking you, like that's, there's nothing logical about that. There's nothing that makes human earthly sense. The fact that we gather around a table and celebrate someone's death and resurrection, there's nothing logical about that. But it's part of this new kingdom and part of how we um, participate in the kingdom is by diving in. And we, we, we participate in the sacraments. We do the disciplines. We find our ministry. We take our vocation out into the world for Christ. So my advice is to dive in.